The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. But I do think that it is notable that he's citing again and again this DOJ filing that when you get to the bottom of it, at the very least indicates a willingness on DOJ's part to acknowledge that perhaps uh, Trump's conduct, at least on the day of, on the 6th, might not be covered by presidential immunity. Um, Again, the the specifics of the doctrine get kind of hairy, but I I did find that notable. I don't, I'm not certainly not saying it involves, you know, any kind of chicanery or anything like that on the part of Trump's lawyers, but I I do think it, it points to just how tricky this is and maybe suggests that Trump's argument on this is not quite so strong as he he would like it to appear. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 7th, 2023. It's another episode of Trump Trials and Tribulations, our weekly live stream on YouTube and on Zoom for material supporters. Joining me in the virtual Zoom studio were Quinta Jurassic, Roger Parloff, Anna Bauer, and Natalie Orpet. We talked about all kinds of things on our whirlwind tour around four different courts. What's going on in the New York civil case? What's with all these gag orders and gag order requests? What's up in the Mar-a-Lago case in South Florida? Who's pleading guilty in Fulton County? And what's up with this new motion to dismiss in Washington on asserted grounds of presidential immunity? It's the Lawfare Podcast, Trump Trials and Tribulations, Gag Orders, and Presidential Immunity. Natalie, I want to start with you. In a state court in New York, we have... A civil case, which we don't normally think about, but it seems weird to talk about all the other cases and not talk about the civil case that is uh, bringing down the Trump organization. So, Natalie, bring us up to speed on uh, the events this week in state court in New York in Letitia James's suit against Donald Trump. Right. So we typically don't talk about this case because it is a civil fraud case relating to Trump personally and various organizations of which he is the head and some other individuals um, relating to allegations that there were truly staggering inflations of value when it came to um, their efforts to secure loans 
um, as compared to the actual value, but more importantly, as compared to the stated value of the same properties in tax forms. So there were huge, huge discrepancies, allegedly, um, although now there has been granted summary judgment on one of the seven counts per the uh, attorney general's motion. Um, and that relates to a law in New York state that prevents, allows the attorney general to bring cases for, uh, quote, repeated and persistent fraud by preparing, certifying, and submitting to lenders and insurance false and misleading financial statements. So this is specifically about statements that were issued that um, engaged in this inflation of value. Um, so the judge has found that there are simply no facts that would change the reality that the attorney general has established a violation of this law. So um, he has actually gone ahead and ordered that several of the businesses be decertified under New York law, which is going to have a huge business impact on Trump reportedly. I wanted to just say two things quickly about this opinion, which, you know, again, is out of scope, so I'll be quick. The first is that the judge spent about the first third or half of the opinion just truly excoriating the Trump team um, for a couple of reasons. Um, to me, one of the most egregious of which was that they have made several legal arguments, not once, not twice, but in some cases, three times. And several of them have been rejected within the law of this case, not only by the trial judge, but also by an appellate court. So this is something that I just really can't imagine doing as a lawyer. Um, it, it just is really shocking to me. And uh, he also gave them quite a hard time for really just some absurd arguments. And, you know, some of the, the language, uh, just to give an example, he says, def defendants glaringly misrepresent the requirements. The arguments are legally preposterous. They misstate the black letter law. Their assertions are nonsense. I mean, he really went at them. Um, he actually sanctioned the lawyers $7,500 a piece. The second thing I want to mention, um, which sort of goes to some of the themes that we've talked about in terms of how Trump and his lawyers may, and in some cases have already conducted themselves uh, with respect to sort of the integrity of, of proceedings and the judicial system, is that the examples that the judge recites in terms of the inflation of valuations and some of the claims that the Trump team made are, are just so egregious that it is hard to imagine how they got away with it. So I wanna, I wanna actually cut you off there and ask you a question that Charlie Sykes asked me today on the Bulwark podcast uh, that we do with them every week. So Charlie said, hey, you know, the Trump defense here is kind of a combination of this is just embellishment. It's not really fraud. It's kind of, you know, something's worth 10 cents. You say it's worth 11. You kind of round up and a sort of everyone does it defense. And, you know, I'm interested. In, I'm curious whether you have the same response to that that I did What's your sense of, in order, the, hey, New York real estate's a dirty business, everybody kind of cheats, and 
you know, there's fraud and then there's fraud. And this this was kind of more more embellishment, sort of fraud light than actual fraud. Yeah, so the judge addresses this directly. There are, I think, two perfectly encapsulating things, one of which is that Mar-a-Lago was overvalued by 2,300% as compared to multiple professional assessors' appraisals. As I was saying, just a little embellishment. You yeah, say who, it's worth, who among us? Who among us hasn't valued something that's you know worth a few tens of millions at $1.2 billion? I mean, that's what Anna does with her mansion all the time. Yeah, I mean, this also, to me, there, were, there was another sort of just patently absurd legal argument here, um, which was the Trump team said that, you know, that the values in some of these cases may be legitimate because, you know, Trump is a big deal. And so these value, these valuations, you know, could be much, much more. But the thing is that the statements were made contemporaneously. We're talking about statements from before he was president, um, so the the valuation now and to what extent it reflects, you know, everyone wanting to own property that the the president owned and therefore being willing to pay an absurd premium is just not relevant whatsoever to the legal claims. Um, the second, you give me the occasion to um, to convey my most favorite part of the opinion, which is that the judge writes. Uh, he, meaning Trump, also seems to imply that the numbers cannot be inflated because he could, quote, find a buyer from Saudi Arabia, unquote, to, buy, to pay any price he suggests. Um, and then in a footnote, <laughs> the judge says, this statement may suggest influence buying more than savvy investing. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to point out that Mar-a-Lago's value with the classified documents is a hell of a lot greater than Mar-a-Lago's value without them. And, you know, I'm sure the Russian Federation would pay a lot for the for the boxes if they convey. All right. I have one other question, Natalie, about this case, but I have to put on my gag in order to ask it. Well, we loosen the gag to ask the question and then I'll put it on. So the judge actually issued a gag order uh, for Donald Trump. So with me uh, bound and gagged here, explain the parameters of this order and what the judge uh, did. Sure. So the order, which seems as of now, at least to only have been issued from the bench, I have not been able to find text of it anywhere. Maybe it will be released after the fact. He has forbidden any posts, emails, or public remarks about members of the judge's staff. And this comes in the wake of a post that Trump put up on Truth Social in which he um, accused one of the judge's law clerks of being the girlfriend of Senator Schumer um, and attached a, a photo of the two of them together and, you know, said something to the effect of how, you know, the he was, you know, subject to a witch hunt and Democrats were against him or whatever, it, you know, that general theme. I don't remember exactly what he said. Um, he also linked to her Instagram, put her by name, had her photo, as I said, for the record, Senator Schumer's office said he has no idea who she is and he takes lots of pictures with constituents while he's touring the great state of New York. So, you know, this is also, I know we'll talk about um, the order in the DC case coming from Judge Chuckin. There's also already um, a gag order in place in the New York criminal case. 
um, which prevents Trump from receiving the names or other identifying uh, information about any personnel in District Attorney Bragg's office and um, also restricts his public comments about the evidence against him. So, you know, we are on a parade of gag orders, which I think, you know, thinking back to before these proceedings started, a lot of people were saying that they could not imagine judges imposing gag orders on Trump because it was going to pose all sorts of problems with, you know, First Amendment complaints and he's running a political campaign. And so how could they possibly stifle his speech? So I think it's just worth reflecting on the idea that as of a couple of months ago, this thing that is now becoming commonplace in each of these proceedings was pretty unthinkable to a lot of analysts. Um, So from one gag order to another, Roger, talk to us about the, uh, I love that we have like, you know, the one common theme in these litigations is is gag orders. Um, What's our Washington gag order situation? Uh, Judge Chutkin is... (laughs) going to uh, hold a hearing on October 16th. And that shows that she's taking this very seriously, very carefully. Uh, you know, that's a long time. This uh, The govern- government originally asked for it in a motion on uh, September 5th. And she doesn't hold that many hearings. And so she she's really wants to make a record. And, and I think she's right. Uh, you know, there isn't a precedent involving a guy running for president. Except Eugene Debs, who was not merely running, not merely uh, uh, under indictment, but actually convicted and in federal prison in Georgia, where his accommodations were less palatial than Anna Bowers. I mean, with respect... A gag order? Did, was there a gag order on him? I, you know, that's that's no, I mean. he was just yeah. in prison. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, we haven't gagged a, a guy running for president. And um, the the law is not crystal clear. The uh, key precedent seems to be Dominic Gentile versus State Bar of Nevada. And that was a, uh, a gag order against an attorney. I mean, usually it is the attorney and not the client that's that's making these arguments. But courts are a little more comfortable regulating attorneys. That's sort of clear that attorneys uh, have sort of a privilege. Uh, it's not clear with uh, somebody running for president. And the uh, that case uses a standard called you can stop them from posing a substantial uh, likelihood of material prejudice, uh, statements that would do that. And um, there is one Fifth Circuit case that adopts that standard against parties, but we don't have, I guess we don't have a second, a DC Circuit case directly on point against parties. And the district courts are a little bit all over the place. The district courts in DC have, uh, have entered these orders. Uh, Roger Stone, uh, Maria Butina, and uh, Manafort. Butina was was uh, or, uh, an order by Maria uh, Butina. For those not familiar with the case, is the Russian agent of influence uh, who pled guilty uh, and um, was involved in gun rights and Republican politics as a student at American University. 
And also in a relationship with an overstock CEO and I believe named or unnamed January 6th conspirator, we don't do, Patrick We Byrne. don't do the salacious gossip here on Lawfare, <laughs> Quinta. Now, now. Uh, so Judge Chutkin issued that one. Now, really, that one was also primarily, it was the attorney that was the issue. The, the actual order did mention parties. So uh, it, it's not a slam dunk. And what she did there was just tracked the language of the of that test. Don't say anything that will create a, you know, substantial likelihood of a of material prejudice, which really isn't that, you know, the, the, the Trump's lawyers say, if you do that, that'll that's like a contempt trap. Who knows what that means? Oh, and they're right. Right. I mean, <laughs> well, it's essentially a restatement of the problem. It is. And so what the government is doing, asking for this time is more than that to to say, look, and I don't have the exact words, but don't mention the identities of witnesses. Don't talk about witnesses. Don't talk about the strength of the proof. You can say you didn't do it, but that's about it. So we'll see. It'll it'll be. And then, of course, the real question is what happens when he violates? And there are sort of three choices. You can impose a fine, which would be uh, totally inefficacious, uh, achieve nothing. You could, she mentioned something about this earlier in the case, you could move up the trial, you know, and he would, you know, he would say, look, it's already a compressed trial. This is a due process problem. My, My lawyers can't prepare. And then, of course, you could hold him in contempt and put him in prison and, and, uh, you know, We'll, we'll see uh, how the country accepts that. All right. Sticking with Judge Chutkin, Quinta Jurassic, uh, there was a motion filed today requesting dismissal of the case on grounds of uh, presidential criminal immunity, a doctrine that does not obviously exist. Give us your sense of uh, we, you've, we've only had this motion in hand for uh, a couple hours, if that. Uh, what is Trump arguing here and what do you make of it? Absolutely. So, yeah, just to emphasize what you're saying, I, I'm saying this on a, a very, very initial read. So, Ben, I will say you and our former Lawfare Legal Fellow, Serafine Danani, uh, predicted, uh, based on the comments of John Laro, one of Trump's lawyers, that Trump would end up making pretty much exactly the argument that is laid out here. Um, So as you say, uh, despite the famous Nixon line, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal from the Frost-Nixon interview, uh, there is actually no doctrine to that effect. What people are usually thinking of, um, if they're thinking of something along these lines, is the Supreme Court's ruling in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, um, which found that the president is immune from civil suit for actions that are within what the court called the outer perimeter of the president's official duties. Um, And so what Trump is arguing here, he's making a couple of different arguments that are kind of layered on top of one another. Um, One of them is that the analysis in Fitzgerald, even though it applies to civil cases, also applies to criminal cases. 
Um, and the other is that the actions for which he's under indictment related to January 6th are within the scope of his official duties, and therefore the newly expanded Fitzgerald immunity should apply. Again, Ben, I'm, I want to turn the question back to, to you in a, in a minute um, and see what uh, if you can, you know, sketch out how, what you kind of anticipated, because I do think that that's helpful. But the broad strokes is essentially he's saying, you know, there's nothing about what I did on January 6th and the run up to January 6th that is outside that outer perimeter. And additionally, even though the government, the special counsel's office is alleging that some of these actions were part of a criminal conspiracy the allegation that something is part of a criminal conspiracy is not enough to move it outside the space of an official act. I think this is, you know, what really jumps out to me here is honestly just that, you know, this is an argument that, again, Ben, as you and Seraphine pointed out, we've been having since Trump fired James Comey. <laughs> um, in some ways, there's there's a bit of a Groundhog Day quality to all of this that, you know, Again and again, we've been having these arguments about presidential immunity, but I think more broadly about, you know, to what extent is Trump's use and abuse of the powers of the presidency sort of the same as the powers of the presidency themselves? And to what extent can those two things be disaggregated? Um, And Trump here is saying that they can't. Yeah, although I will say that the parameters of agreement on this subject are broader than they were about Comey. My my principal antagonist in that argument, Josh Blackman, uh, has no argument with me ab- uh, about the piece that Sarafin and I wrote. So I I do think the the professional community is a little bit more in agreement on this than it than than on that. Natalie, what do you make of it? Yeah, um, I mean, I echo everything Quinta said. I think there there is one thing that I also read it very briefly, but seemed to me um, a more nuanced argument that that is worth reflecting on, which is um, as Quinta said, they argue that. Um, the acts themselves are within the uh, president's official duties and that merely alleging that they were unlawful doesn't move those acts outside of the official duties. The additional piece of that is that they cite quite a lot of case law for the premise that you cannot, in deciding whether something is within a president's official duties, look to what motivated him. To, t- to undertake those actions. And it strikes me that that actually is very complicated with respect to the conspiracy charge because conspiracy, of course, requires corrupt intent. So if you, you're in a little bit of a catch-22, perhaps, when it comes to the allegations, if the acts in and of themselves are arguably within the gov- within the president's official duties, which I very much don't think they are, but if you can successfully portray them as being such, then you really do have a problem in terms of demonstrating as a matter of law that they are outside or beyond the outer perimeter of the president's official duties. Roger, you had something to say on this. I know you've given this a lot of thought as well. Yeah. uh, And I I don't want to interrupt you, uh, but I I agree with you. I thought this was uh, one of the better Trump motions I've read so far. 
it was straight. Uh, there was only like one line about how I'm the uh, front runner in, uh, to, against the, the uh, against the Biden uh, administration. And there was another line that gave me pause because I hadn't really read it that way before. Um, I'm curious what you guys think. Um, it's the impeachment clause line, which says judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment. And his lawyers say, well, it says convicted. I was acquitted. And and so the anticipation is this, you know, the only way to get at the president is A, to convict him, in, impeach him, and then go after him. And and he says, I, I, and, you know, this came down we got this two hours ago. They claimed that Justice Alito adopted this argument or endorsed it in uh, in Vance, uh, the recent one Trump about v. Vance. Trump v. Vance. Trump, yes, that's the other name. So uh, uh, that was a little concerning to me. But in general, I thought it was a surprisingly good motion. All right. So a couple things before we move on on this. Uh, number one, there is no chance that this motion prevails at either the district court or the circuit court level. Uh, it's citing a doctrine that doesn't exist. If that doctrine is going to exist, uh, it has to be created by the Supreme Court. So there's really two questions that this motion raises. Number one, are there five votes on the Supreme Court for the idea of extending Fitzgerald to criminal conduct? And then if you do that for construing as a factual matter, the allegations in the indictment within the four corners of the presidency, I think the answer to that question is almost certainly not, but you never know for sure. It's a question, literally not a single justice on the court was on it at the time of Nixon v. Fitzgerald, and relatively few were on it at the time of the Paula Jones case, which is the closest we've got. And so the, you know, it's a, it really is a question of first impression to most of them. The second, uh, issue, and this is, I think, the big importance of this motion, is that it's going to cause or it could cause a delay in the case. And the reason for that is, uh, and I want to give a little shout out to Ruth Marcus, who first noticed this, that the denial of this motion, and Chutkin will deny it, uh, is probably subject to interlocutory appeal because of uh, a bunch of technical matters that we don't need to go into, but if somebody wants to ask about them, we can. That means that when she denies it and uh, Trump takes her up, unless the DC circuit deals with it uh, with extreme speed, uh, this could really knock out the March 4th trial date. And I think that is an extremely important component of the motion even if people don't take the motion seriously on its face, which I think, at least at the lower court level, there is nothing to be said for this idea, though at the Supreme Court level, you know, who knows, anything can happen. Quinta, you had another point you wanted to make about this. 
Yeah, I mean, so first off, on your point about how, you know, counting votes um, on the court, I do think that I agree with Roger that that citation to the Alito opinion advance is interesting. Alito is dissenting there, right? Um, and he's he's not just dissenting, he's dissenting in a case that uh, where he was one of two votes in dissent. And I don't even, I'm not sure if Thomas even joined his dissent. So I don't, I would have to double check if Thomas makes a similar argument. Okay. Yeah. Roger, is that? He dissented, but he didn't uh, discuss that grounds. Gotcha. So, right. So, I mean, who knows, but I do think that that, you know, certainly maybe there's one or two votes, but I find it hard to count five, but you never know. I think one of the things I found really interesting about this motion is how often it cites a filing from the Justice Department in Blessingham v. Trump, um, otherwise known as as Thompson v. Trump. So listeners might be familiar. This is the uh, civil litigation against Trump um, and a number of others for what happened on January 6th. And so after the the district court federal district court in D.C. ruled that Trump was not immune from suit over this. And Trump, of course, appealed. Um, it is uh, somehow still before the D.C. Circuit, as Natalie and I confirmed earlier today, even though there was oral argument in December. So they're definitely uh, taking their sweet time with this one. But one of the really interesting things about that case is that DOJ filed an amicus brief in uh, March of 2023. And Trump cites that brief repeatedly in this motion. And if you just read the Trump motion, you might think that the DOJ amicus brief was arguing that Trump does enjoy at least civil immunity for the conduct around January 6th. Um, That's actually not what the DOJ brief says. Um, So what the brief is arguing is essentially saying, you know, we take a broader view of presidential immunity than the plaintiffs in this case would would offer. But we do think that there are, you know, there's some conduct that's beyond the outer perimeter. And as alleged at the motion to dismiss stage, we think that the January 6th speech that Trump gave on the ellipse would be outside that perimeter. Now, the way that they do that is a little bit complicated because it involves folding together the First Amendment um, defense that Trump has, uh, Trump offered to this case with the, the immunity defense. Um, and so I can certainly see how you could argue, you know, well, the there's not a Brandenburg aspect to what the Trump Trump is arguing in uh, the criminal in this motion to dismiss. So it's the, you know, we can, it makes sense that they'd only focus on the DOJ's arguments about the, the other material. But I do think that it is notable that he's citing again and again, this DOJ filing that when you get to the bottom of it, at the very least indicates a willingness on DOJ's part to acknowledge that perhaps uh, Trump's conduct, at least on the day of, of, on the 6th, might not be covered by presidential immunity. Um, Again, the the specifics of the doctrine get kind of hairy, but I I did find that notable. I don't, I'm not certainly not saying it involves, you know, any kind of chicanery or anything like that on the part of Trump's lawyers, but I I do think it, it points to just how tricky this is and maybe suggests that Trump's argument on this is not quite so strong as he he would like it to appear. Roger. You know, one last thing. Um, just, I think it would have to go through 
uh, if this does get to the Supreme Court, it would have to go through the justices' heads that if they say, yes, he's absolutely immune to criminal liability on these facts, and then he's elected again, where are we then? I mean, it is such, I think even the current court would have to worry about, would have to worry about that. Yeah. So one minor factor that points in the other direction, which is that if you go back to Fitzgerald, there is a a stinging dissent in Fitzgerald by one Byron White, who has admirers on the current court, particularly Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, and Byron White wrote a um, a very fierce dissent, which four of the justices joined, Fitzgerald being a, a closely divided opinion. And one of the things that Fitzgerald, uh, that the dissent says is, hey, by the logic of this, it would immunize the president against criminal activity too. And because if it really sounds in the separation of powers, you can't criminalize what you can't make civilly liable either. So um, I do think, you know, this is a weird hole that's laying in the law of presidential immunity since uh, whenever Fitzgerald happened, 78 or uh, 77. And it's a um, it's these are terrible, terrible facts to try to resolve it in favor of immunity. And it does cut against some pretty plain constitutional text in the impeachment clauses, notwithstanding the way Trump wants to read those uh, provisions. Um, But again, at least because of the issue of delay, it's not a trivial issue. All right. Anna Bauer has been sitting there very patiently. Uh, Let's go to Georgia, where Judge McAfee just had a very interesting hearing at which Sidney Powell's lawyer doing his best Jim Jordan imitation, which is to say, never lowering his voice below the level of an angry shout, uh, actually told us a lot about what Sidney Powell's defense is going to be. What did you make of uh, what is the Sidney Powell defense and what did you make of it? Yeah, so this was a hearing on two motions that Powell has submitted a, a motion to dismiss the indictment based on prosecutorial misconduct and and then a motion for Brady material, which is, you know, exculpatory material that, you know, might prove Sidney Powell's alleged innocence. Um, but what we really got and, and what we saw is that Rafferty, Sidney Powell's attorney, really wanted to get into the facts of the case and, and was already trying to argue argue the factual defense uh, that Powell is likely going to present at trial. So we got a preview of that. And the defense is one Sidney Powell had nothing to do with the breach of voting systems in Coffee County, Georgia. Uh, she barely knows any of these people, did not have any contact with any of them, you know, ahead of the, the breach of voting systems. Um, and in the filings, I'm not sure if he mentioned this today, but in the filings, we also uh, learned that allegedly Sidney Powell did not even know about any of this happening until uh, after the fact uh, her attorney has represented 
represented that, you know, the copying of voting equipment in Coffee County, Georgia, occurred on January 7th, 2021. And he says that even though, you know, Sidney Powell was receiving emails while that was occurring, she didn't even check her email until January 9th, 2021. That defense is a total (laughs) winner with me. I often get him on email chains that I noticed weeks later. And, you know, if any of them uh, involves criminal activity, I, I, you know, I didn't see it. Right. Yes. So, uh, so, and, and we can all uh, relate to Sidney Powell in that respect. Um, uh, even if we can't relate to her in, in virtually any other any respect. Other respect. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the second part of this is, and even if she was involved, this breach was authorized. They're, they're arguing initially in the filings, Rafferty, who is Sidney Powell's attorney, said that they had unanimous consent of the Board of Elections in Coffee County, but he has subsequently and, and quite subtly walked that back in his filings and then at the hearing today where he's he's saying that they had Coffee County officials who authorized the breach and he's pointed to this purported letter of invitation uh, from the Coffee County election supervisor, Misty Hampton, who is also one of the co-defendants of Powell's in the case. Um, so we kind of got that that two pronged defense, which is one, Powell had nothing to do with it. And even if she did, it was authorized. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. 
therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. 
So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so meanwhile, we have had our first plea in this case, uh, and it's from a bail bondsman, which seems really appropriate. Uh, How big a deal is the Scott Hall plea? And... uh, if you were arrested in uh, Fulton County, will would you will you be calling him to write your bond? <laughs> uh, at this point, I will not be calling Scott Hall to uh, write my bond, uh, especially because, like I said the other day, when we had a similar conversation on the Lawfare podcast, I think he might be out of the bail bondsman business now because he was forced out because of some scandal that happened in Gwinnett County. Um, But uh, Scott Hall, the bail bondsman, is the first person to plea uh, in any of of Trump's uh, criminal cases across federal and state levels. Uh, He's the first co-defendant of Trump's to to plea out. In terms of how big of a deal it is, well, I think it was always going to be the case that the first plea deal reached was going to be a big deal, in part because it starts getting the other co-defendants a little bit nervous and it, it potentially has a snowball effect as people start seeing other folks get deals. Scott Hall got a very good deal. He, he has to be on probation for five years and um, he won't serve any jail time. Um, he and- a letter of apology. <laughs> I, I <laughs> he- thought that was a particularly quaint uh, <laughs> part of the sentence. Yeah, the, the vibes there are very like I'm 19 years old and just got a speeding ticket for the first time and the judge is, you know, is saying, okay, you've got to write a letter of apology and and do some hours of community service. But I still think that it it potentially does, you know, have a powerful communicative effect. I will see what the apology letter says, but it is supposed to be filed on the clerk's uh, docket at whenever it's written. But I think the big deal and the reason this is a big deal that has to do with his conditions of the plea deal is that he is now a cooperator with the state. He must provide documents at the request of the prosecution. He must testify in any of the trials of his co-defendants. And that's a big deal because even though many people don't know the name Scott Hall, they might think that his conduct is only isolated to the Coffee County breach. He actually is kind of a connective tissue of sorts within this case between many of the different prongs of the RICO conspiracy. He had a phone call with Jeffrey Clark that was that was very uh, lengthy uh, around the time that Clark was pressuring Justice Department officials to send a letter that allegedly falsely claimed that the Justice Department had found evidence of of fraud that could, you know, justify the Georgia legislature appointing a a different uh, slate of electors or at least delaying or doing more investigation on that point. 
Uh, and he also had many phone calls with other co-defendants, Bob Cheeley, um, Trevion Cuddy, and that is alleged to be an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. We don't really know the substance of those phone calls, but I presume that that prosecutors have some sense of what the substance of those calls were because uh, it is, you know, in the indictment that is alleged as an overt act. So and he also was mentioned by David Schaefer in as early as November of 2020 as someone who was looking into the election on behalf of the president at the request of David Bossy. David Bossy, of course, is someone who was a close ally of Trump and, and a political uh, campaign strategist. He is allegedly or reportedly, excuse me, the the stepbrother in law or something like that of, of Scott Hall. So Scott Hall has, you know, a lot of connections to different defendants here, to different uh, aspects of the con- uh, the alleged conspiracy. So I think that this is a big deal because he's someone who does potentially have a, a whole lot to offer. And he's now a cooperator for the prosecution. And are we expecting more, please? I would expect more, please. Um, I don't know when and I don't know who, but um, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported about two days ago that uh, more plea deals, plea offers have gone out. I think that, you know, like I said, sometimes this has a, a snowball effect of sorts and that one person gets a really good deal and and then other people start thinking to themselves, maybe I should get in on this while I can. I'm looking at some of the folks who, you know, have maybe been a little bit less active on the docket, people who might have less financial resources than some of the bigger fish like Trump, people who uh, have a pretty solid case against them. So there's more of an incentive to plea instead of going to trial. It's a little bit complicated here because some of the usual incentives, you know, are are counteracted by the fact that some of these people are party loyalists and they have a lot of other kind of socio-political reasons why they maybe would would not take the rational, you know, action of of weighing up the the likelihood of conviction versus, you know, all the other things. So uh, it's going to be really interesting. I don't know when we will see more plea deals, but I suspect that that they will come. So we'll see. All right. Before we go to audience questions, and we do have a lot of them, uh, uh, Roger, we got we to gotta make a stop in South Florida. We're going to have some Garcia hearings. We got a motion to defer the trial until the end of time. Well, uh, what's going on down there? Yeah, uh, there'll be Garcia hearings on the 12th. That's Thursday. That means uh, Garcia is uh, was a ruling. It was actually a Fifth Circuit ruling, but back before the 11th Circuit was carved out of it. So it's binding on the 11th Circuit. And if the government thinks that somebody, if a, a defendant has uh a defendant's lawyer has a might have a conflict of interest. He goes to the judge to make it to informed to to make sure the defendant is uh, fully informed of uh, uh, the possible conflicts. Because and and this would ordinarily happen where the lawyer is perhaps representing two defendants or he's representing a defendant and some witnesses. 
if the guy is convicted, he can his his new lawyer on appeal can say, oh, he had a conflict. So the uh, conviction is invalid. So that's nominally the reason you do this. But really, uh, the government is also concerned that these conflicts are preventing people from pleading guilty. And uh, and there was uh, one of their witnesses right now, a guy named, well, uh, Trump employee four in the uh, in the uh, Florida case, who is reportedly Yusil Tavares, the IT guy. He testified uh, in March before the D.C. grand jury that he and he absolved everybody. Uh, he didn't know anything. And then the, the government had reason to believe he was lying and he was represented by a guy named Stanley Woodward, and Woodward represents Walt Nauta. And uh, the government went to Woodward, and they said, we think your guy has a conflict. And he said, I, I don't see the conflict. And they said, we're going to indict him. And if he doesn't you know, change his testimony, if he doesn't correct his testimony, and if he does correct his testimony, he'll, he'll implicate your other client. And he said, I still don't see a conflict. And the judge appointed an independent counsel and um, Tavares took the independent counsel and then uh, uh, and then uh, entered a non-prosecution agreement and cooperation agreement. That's what, by the way, I should say, everybody says, everybody averred Woodward didn't do anything wrong. The guy testified second time, said I wasn't coached. So, you know, it's not, but anyway, Woodward is one of the guys that is involved in this Garcia hearing down there. He represents Nauta still. He also represents two other uh, witnesses the government wants to call. And so um, Judge Cannon is holding a hearing, but he's she's only gonna hold it for him. She's not gonna hold it for the other witnesses and she's not gonna call an independent counsel to discuss it with him. At least that's where things stand. The, the other thing that's more interesting uh, and, and maybe more important happened last night. Uh, the the uh, Trump asked uh, to delay that trial until uh, six months, which would take it to uh, November 2024. And uh, uh, this was uh, in a reply motion. Uh, originally, they were trying to put off the next SEPA deadline, Classified Information Procedures Act deadline, which is coming up, I think, Tuesday. And uh, they wanted to put that off two months. And the government said, this is a veiled attempt to destroy the whole deadline. And then by the time of the reply, they said, you know what? We really do have to put off the trial. And um, they're citing some problems, some of which are, are sort of interesting. They say that, and of course, we haven't heard the government's response to this, that there is no skiff no uh, facility for viewing these highly uh, classified in, uh, documents in the Fort Pierce division of the Southern District of Florida, which is where Judge Cannon sits. And she did ask in July that one be quickly built for her. The one they have is in Miami, which is two hours south. And so uh, it creates a question of how does she hold hearings? How does she write rulings? relating to uh, these highly confidential uh, documents. And um, uh, another problem is um, they're saying that Christopher Kyes, the, who is sort of 
maybe the second most important lawyer down there for Trump. Uh, the lead lawyer is Todd Blanche. He's caught up in the New York civil case. And the New York civil case is supposed to last till December. So they're complaining, they're raising that. There's also nine documents they haven't seen. Nine of the 32 that are that Trump is charged with willfully retaining. And apparently they're extremely sensitive. And so uh, four of them, the government is allowing to be seen only in D.C., in a skiff in D.C. Uh, and five of them, it's a little unclear. Trump is saying they are una unavailable under any circumstances. It sounds to me like DOJ, they're available uh, in D.C. also, but they, they're trying to get them all available in Florida. One of those, by the way, is the one that has to do with uh, nuclear capabilities of a foreign country. All right. Well, all said documents are available at the Brookings Institution, uh, where we have a very nice skiff. That's all completely false. I should say that I should say one of my uh, Twitter followers suggested that he uh, why doesn't why don't they use the skiff in the Mar-a-Lago bathroom? But. Yeah. All right. We're going to go to audience questions. The, the first two are written in from uh, somebody whose name I don't know. Number one, the Georgia special grand jury delivered an overwhelming recommendation to indict Donald Trump with one dissenting vote for each of the charges. Are there variations in the jury selection process between Georgia special grand juries, Georgia state grand juries and federal juries? And what measures can Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith employ to prevent the inclusion of a rogue juror? And what options are available to them if a single juror holds out for Trump? So the second half of that question is easy. No remedies are available to them except to retry the case. That is what unanimity among jurors means. If one juror holds out, you get a hung jury, you can retry the case, you can drop the case, but there's no remedy for that. Anna, what is your sense of the first part of it? The the variation in jury practice is substantial, yeah? Yes. So uh, in a, there's a big difference between the special purpose grand jury stage or the grand jury stage. And then, you know, what ha what's happening when you're selecting a jury for a trial, uh, when you're selecting a jury for a grand jury or a special purpose grand jury in Georgia, it is you know, very simple. There's only a few things that could make you not eligible to serve on a special purpose grand jury or a grand jury. There are a few disqualifying things like you can't, I think it's, you can't be an elected official who's, you know, currently serving. You can't um, be related to someone in the case. You know, there's a few other things like that, but but mainly, you know, it's just beyond that, like anyone can be impaneled and they kind of just go down the list of the first however many people that are on the list of names um, and then they'll hear hardships, which, you know, is whether you've you're, maybe you're caring for someone in your family your primary caretaker, something like that. Um, you might be able to to get out of it uh, by, you know, claiming a hardship and the judge will hear that and then decide whether or not you uh, should be excused. But beyond that, it's, you know, not not really much that the prosecution uh, or the defense can do to 
try to keep jurors out who are might be prejudiced um, uh, coming into it. Um, different story at the uh, jury selection level for a trial as between federal and state uh, jury selection. I'm actually not entirely sure the nuances of it as between federal jury selection and, and Georgia jury selection. I do know, though, that one difference is that I believe at the federal level, uh, it's the judge who conducts voir dire and, and asks questions of the jurors, whereas in Georgia, they've been kind of going back and forth in this case about uh, the jury questions and how much time the defense attorneys are going to have to question the jurors. Uh, so, you know, that is one difference is that it's the defense attorneys versus the judge. And and there's just various strategies that are are more robust at the at the trial stage rather than the grand jury stage in terms of trying to weed out people who have some kind of bias or prejudice going in and, and aren't able to uh, hear the, the evidence in the case and uh, render a, a verdict uh, without, you know, letting those uh, influences come into the decision. So, uh, yeah. Anyone else have thoughts on that? I, I am curious, Ben, if you know anything else. I was once on a jury panel with Eric Holder, who was just about to be appointed attorney general and Harvey Rishikoff. Uh, the three of us all know each other. And Eric, who had been a U.S. attorney in the relevant court, who had been a judge on the relevant court, who had been deputy attorney general, the judge took one look at him, burst out laughing and threw him off the jury. I was the last person cut uh, and Harvey was the foreman of the jury. All right. Second question. Could each panelist clarify their pronunciation of E.N.? space B-A-N-C, and whether they use the French accent or not, which side is correct, and why is the other side wrong? Roger. I don't put a hyphen in there, by the way, but I, I do say, I say N-Bank. It's, it's French, but it's probably Old Norman, and my French accent's not good, but my Old Norman accent is terrible. So I just go with the English. Quinta. I say en banc, even though I don't speak a single word of French. Anna. En banc all the way. Natalie. En banc. (laughs) (laughs) Going with the super pretentious. Um, I go with en banc with with like like Quinta. All right. That's uh, real. Now that we've gotten that really important question out of the way, Jacob, you get the next question. So Quinta established that corruption slash crime is the state pastime of New Jersey. So is it inevitable that Trump will be uh, have crimes brought against him for Bedminster? Yeah, we were missing uh, Scott Anderson, who I think is still holding out for for charges in, in Bedminster. I'm drawing a blank. I feel like there was some reason why we thought that perhaps there would not be further Bedminster charges. I think it's because the we fa- discovered that the grand jury that had been convened in the course of the document investigation was no longer hearing that. So, okay. Yeah. There are nods uh, for those listening. Um, so yes, that's the case, which means that if there's going to be a Bedminster indictment, we wouldn't expect it to come from that same grand jury. I guess perhaps there could be another grand jury impaneled in the district of New Jersey, and there could be an investigation following from that. I 
we haven't seen any signs of that. Um, of course, you know, that doesn't mean it, it isn't happening, but uh, I hold out hope and I, I know Scott does too. Jared, you get the next question. So um, I've got a couple of questions related to the Atlanta trial. Um, the first one is when a trial is split, as has happened with this one, how much precedential value is there between trials within the same indictment um, for law and evidence? So if something is accepted or denied in one trial, does that uh, def- is that the default holding in any subsequent trials or does it get treated as a new motion? Uh, the second question that I have is, if this first trial goes long, uh, since Georgia RICO trials seem to go extremely long, is that likely to delay the start of any uh, following trials pending resolution of the first? Because it seems like since it's under the same judge, that would create a calendar conflict. Anna, you want to take this one? Yes. So I think in this case, you know, Judge McAfee has said that he's going to take each motion and and the facts that are specific to those defendants and kind of so so and it's kind of complicated here, right, because some of them have adopted motions of other defendants. And because they're the two groups are severed, it it kind of depends a little bit. Like, for example, if there's a pure question of law that Judge McAfee decides and it doesn't involve, you know, applying factual like discrete factual patterns that is unique to each defendant to the law, then I think that, you know, in those situations, whatever he decides in the Powell case, uh, he's probably also going to decide in, you know, the Trump case or whatever uh, later down the road, unless there's some kind of appellate decision that in, in the interim period, you know, reverses or or, or that kind of thing. Um, but I think that, you know, from what I understand is that if it is something that requires a unique, you know, factual analysis, Judge McAfee is not going to bind himself based on whatever he decided uh, for Powell um, and then later on decide that for, you know, Trump. But so I I think that it's a little bit complicated because, you know, here it, it may be that Judge McAfee decides something, he could technically allow, you know, uh, an interlocutory appeal, or it could even be the case that the Powell uh, and Chesbro trial ends, and then it goes up on appeal um, before the Trump case even starts. And so then, you know, we actually do have some binding appellate uh, authority that that would then, you know, change whatever decision uh, potentially McAfee made earlier. So it really just depends. But, you know, it, it it seems like just as a practical matter, if Judge McAfee makes one decision now on a pure question of law, he's going to make the same decision later on down the road for other defendants. All right. Auntie Rua Conan, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ben. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, how would you describe uh, Rudy's current uh, attorney situation and uh, could it get possibly any worse? And uh, what civic significance, if any, does the volume of limited classified evidence from the uh, government case in the DC trial have in addition to the fact that apparently they're not going to be used at trial? Thank you. So the Rudy situation, I mean, his former lawyer is suing him. He's, he's got a major 
you know, set of criminal problems and it's not clear how he's going to afford representation in in it. Um, I would say it's his situation is bad, but uh, it's the least of his problems, honestly. The bigger problem is that he has a uh, a bunch of criminal exposure and he could end up going to prison just to address the the second question briefly i assume the limited volume of classified material in that case involves uh the conversation with general milley and um where he says you know we're going to leave this one for the next guy and i think it's incidental to the uh to the case but, you know, they included the allegations that are adjacent to it. So they probably have some discovery to do in connection with it. Uh, Roger or anyone else, do you have a sense of, do you have more sense of the SEPA issues in this case? They are very limited, like Auntie says. And uh, I think it's probably more than one issue because there are, there's five to 10 documents. And then there's a couple transcripts, portions of which are classified. And then there's something that they want to redact that they said has to do with a discrete issue. So it sounded like something different also. But the bottom line is Auntie's right. They're very limited. They're not going to use them. And it makes it unlikely that, uh, to me, I think, that uh, Trump will be able to delay that trial in D.C. based on any issues related to classified documents, just because it's such a peripheral part of the case. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly say something on the Rudy thing, because I don't know if you saw or I don't know if a lot of people saw this yesterday, but his second attorney in the Fulton County case uh, filed a motion to withdraw from representing him. So he has lost both of his attorneys in the Fulton County case. Uh, So he is currently uh, likely looking for new representation, which I think uh, will be quite difficult um, considering that he is now already being sued by another attorney who's saying that he hasn't paid. You know, it's hard to find people to who can do a a complex RICO case like this. So I just want to say, I don't think his attorney situation can get any worse, um, but we will see. (laughs) Never say can't get any worse. And incidentally, just a side note, um, Mike Lindell lost six attorneys today. They all bailed on him. In See, the Domin- it can get worse he dem- <laughs> uh, in the Dominion. Well, just at least he's got a good pillow to put his head down on. Uh, so Nathan asks, so Ben, why did you think Trump would end up not filing a motion seeking removal of his case from Fulton County to federal court? as Mark Meadows and others have. So the simple answer to this question, and it was very nice of Anna to flag that I had predicted this, but this was a private prediction. It wasn't one I was willing to do in public because I frankly didn't have any confidence in it. But the, the logic of it, which may or may not be the right, the actual explanation, but the logic of it was simply that If he was going to do it, he would have done it already. The the point of waiting was to see how Meadows did. And Meadows did badly, 
notwithstanding the fact that people like Alan Rosenstein and Anna Bauer and I thought he had a pretty decent case for removal, he did badly. Trump's case for removal is worse than Meadows. Um, And so why then would you subject yourself to this, to going through this losing process? And if Meadows turns around and wins at the 11th Circuit, then you kind of hitch a ride on Meadows and maybe get removal that way. The other thing that I, I have to say was a factor in my mind is that if I were, what's his name, Steve Sadow, is that his name? I would prefer to be in Judge McAfee's court than in Judge Jones's court. Judge Jones has been fine, but he's been exactly the lawyer that pundits on MSNBC would want a district judge in that case to be. McAfee has been very open to to, uh, defense arguments. And so I just, I think I would like my chances before Judge McAfee better than I would like my chances in front of uh, Jones. And that's, uh, that was the logic as I thought about it. And I have no idea if that's the object, if that's the reason uh, he did it. Morally, the floor is yours. Hello. So in my head, there are two models of immunity, right? There's the prosecutor or, you know, the the state chooses to decline prosecution to get something else out of you. And then there is what appears to be being talked about in the uh, presidential immunity theory, where just systemically framework wise, this person is immune from criminal liabilities in these circumstances, like relying on, I think what Roger brought up, the Supreme Court thinking, hey, if we grant this theory, then he gets reelected, that that has interesting implications. Is there anything systemic in terms of a legal theory or principle in the US system or others where it's like, you cannot systemically make someone completely criminally not liable for acts that are otherwise unlawful? Like, that seems like an invariant you want to preserve naively, but I've not heard anyone mention anything like that. So I'm curious. Roger, you want to take this one? Well, judges are absolutely immune for anything they do as a judge. And it's, it's pretty, and prosecutors too, for, uh, you know, that it's fairly airtight as long as they're something they're doing in their job. It's just the sort of job that, Everyone will sue you if that isn't the rule. And so Trump is saying it's the same with the president. But, but that's civil, right? What, that's civil immunity, or is that also criminal immunity? Oh, uh, no, you're right. Um, no, it, it, judges have been prosecuted, so you're right. Uh, so, um, no, that's a good point. I, I, I guess I can't think of anybody that is immune from from criminal prosecution. Well, no, no, sure you can. There's lots of people who are immune on the basis of executive immunity uh, from, for example, the supremacy clause immunity, right? If you're within the four corners of your federal employment, um, you're immune from all kinds of things. And I don't From state, from state. Well, but also from federal. Uh, So I don't think anybody doubts that there's some degree of presidential immunity. So if Congress tried to prohibit the president from giving, make it a crime to give the State of the Union address in French, and 
then, you know, there were a prosecution, you'd say there's a separation of powers problem with that. So I, I think there's there's some degree of presidential immunity is it's never been defined because people don't try to prosecute presidents. All right, Michael, the floor is yours. Do we dare hope? What are the odds each of you would assign that Trump will receive any sort of criminal penalties? Let's do around the table. Roger. I, I'm a little reluctant to, to weigh in. I think I'll pass. Quinta. Yeah, I'm not going to make a prediction here. It's there are too there are too many factors. There are too many cases. There's the additional question of if there is a conviction, will it hold up on appeal? Um, I, I think that uh, post 2016, making predictions about the future is a fool's game. Anna, I mean, I'm not going to like assign a percentage, but I at this point, I and <laughs> I am probably going to end up being wrong about this, but I would say more likely than not. But I I can't really put a percentage on it more than that. Natalie. Yeah, I'm not going to break my streak of um, across the board refusing to speculate about things. But I will say that in terms of the law, I think that the government in several of these, or at least at least one or two of these cases has an exceptionally strong argument. But there are, as Quinta said, so many other variables at play here in terms of whether a conviction is actually secured that our analysis of the relative strengths of the arguments or the nature of the facts is really a much smaller percentage of the equation than it might be in any other case. I will be bolder than any of my colleagues. That's the part of the editor-in-chief prerogative. And I will say that if you control for the possibility of election as president, if he gets elected as president, all of this is off the table. The likelihood of conviction is on one or more of 90 plus felony counts in four different jurisdictions is near 100%. If you don't control for, if you include the possibility of election as president, uh, the probability goes down by whatever possibility you think he has of becoming president. But judged as a set of four indictments of multiple counts each, some of which with overwhelming evidence and which the law is simply crystal clear, particularly Florida, um, it's just not a serious, like that case absent some deus ex machina intervention is not going to result in no conviction. All right. Uh, well, the last question of the day. Um, oh, and Carrie informs us on the Q&A that there is breaking news that Trump allegedly shared classified information about U.S. submarine capabilities with an Australian billionaire. If that's true, would that be a new case or could it be rolled into the Mar-a-Lago case? Uh, I'm going to pass on that because I, this is literally the first I've heard of this and I have no idea what the context of it is or the provenance of the information. And so um, I, I just uh, don't know anything about it and I'm going to pass on that. I'm going to, we're going to close with Jared's second question. 
which is whether the first Atlanta trial running long would delay subsequent trials to avoid a calendar conflict. And I will pass this to Anna, although I will say that the first Atlanta trial, that is the Chesbro and Powell trial running long, wouldn't delay any subsequent other Trump trials, except perhaps the other one in Atlanta. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, so it, it could potentially delay. It, it depends. And it's hard to really say, because right now we don't know when this the second Trump, the sorry, I shouldn't say second Trump trial, the uh, non Chesbro Powell group. We don't know when they are going to trial. We have a scheduling order. And I believe right now, uh, like pretrial motions are supposed to be in uh, by sometime in December. So the earliest that it could go would be probably, you know, January, February, and I know that there's a lot of other cases that are scheduled for next year for uh, Trump's team. So it gets a little bit complicated. Um, so I, I really don't know how to say this other than it it just depends, um, you know, how long the trial goes, when the next trial is. But yes, it could uh, theoretically delay the next trial. I also will say that there was at one point uh, Judge McAfee mentioned that, you know, if someone else files a speedy trial demand um, and they are not being tried with Powell and Chesbro, then it, it could be the case that there's other judges standing by in Fulton County who would be willing to take on that case. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone can't go until after the Chesbro Powell trial, um, because there might be just some uh, unique circumstances with some of these people who have waived their speedy trial demand, but only for this term of court. court. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit weird how that's, um, you know, uh, uh, working out, but we'll see. All right, Natalie, close us out. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll just answer because I had read the question differently. So Jared, hopefully one of us will answer the question that you had in mind. Um, I thought you were referring to whether the Fulton County trial going on would impact the other trials that Trump is involved with. So in answer to that uh, analysis or that interpretation of the question, it is really entirely up to the discretion of each of the judges in each of the cases. Um, there has been reporting, interestingly, that some of the judges, and I apologize, I don't remember which two actually did confer with each other about scheduling, but there's nothing that requires them to do so. And, you know, I had talked with people when all of this was ramping up who thought, you know, doing that would be risky because it could subject the judges to, you know, accusations of colluding or whatever, but, you know, one of the things that I've written about and I spoke about on the podcast with um, a former colleague of mine, Brandon Fox, who was a prosecutor, a criminal prosecutor for a long time in California, is this difficulty of presence and multiple cases going on at the same time. So um, there is a presence requirement in criminal court, in, in uh, federal criminal court but also in New York state court. In New York state, um, apparently presence can be waived um, if the defendant requests it and the government does not object and the judge approves. 
Quinta and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, apparently, there's a practitioner who advised us that she knows of that happening all the time. Um, so perhaps that will be the case in New York. In the federal cases, it's possible to get out of the presence requirement, but it's more complicated. And you know, if the if the federal judges don't um, coordinate, it is theoretically possible that. Uh, Trump could be required to be present at two different proceedings happening at the same time. Um, of course, the presence requirement doesn't apply in federal court to all proceedings in a case. So, and I, I misspoke earlier that my main conversation about this was, was with Dan Richmond, who also wrote a very good piece for us. And I had the piece I had written was more about the many ways in which the fact of these trials happening simultaneously, including the pretrial proceedings, and I was focused particularly on the pretrial proceedings, can affect the prosecution's strategy and even the defense's strategy with respect to the overlap. Um, so hopefully, Jared, that answered your question. We are going to leave it there. We will be back next week. Uh, Roger, Quinta, Anna, Natalie, thank you all for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Anna Hickey. Folks, you listen to this podcast, you hear these people in the live audience asking these great questions, and I know what you say to yourself. You say to yourself, self... I want to be a person asking those questions, and here's how you can do it. Go to lawfaremedia.org support, become a material supporter of Lawfare, and you can join the Zoom conversation and ask your own questions at Trump Trials and Tribulations. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always... Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.